Come, thou fount of every blessing, and tune our hearts to sing your grace. Lord, we know that our hearts are prone to wander, but that in the Lord Jesus Christ you have come and wiped away all our sin and brought us near to you. Father, we pray this morning as we hear your word read and it is proclaimed to us that you might, by your Spirit, reveal um, more of your truth to us. Not only the truth about you and what you have done, but also about ourselves. Uh, We pray that um, as your word is read and proclaimed, that you might do your work within us, uh, your good work of exposing our sin, but also of lifting our eyes to your grace. Uh, Make us, we pray, more and more um, to live in the light of your goodness to us in Christ. And we pray that for your glory in his name. Amen. Genesis 45, verse 1 and following through to 46, verse 7. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants, and he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him and Pharaoh's household heard him. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now there has been famine in the land and for the next five years there will be no ploughing nor reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household, and ruler of all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says, God has made me lord of all Egypt, Come down to me, don't delay. You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me. You, your children and grandchildren, your flocks and herds and all you have. I will provide for you there because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise, you and your household and all who belong to you will become destitute. You can see for yourselves, and so can my brother Benjamin, that it is really I who am speaking to you. 
tell my father about all the honour accorded to me in Egypt and about everything you have seen. And bring my father down here quickly. Then he threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and wept. And Benjamin embraced him, weeping. And he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. Afterward, his brothers talked with him. When the news reached Pharaoh's palace that Joseph's brothers had come, Pharaoh and all his officials were pleased. Pharaoh said to Joseph, Tell your brothers, do this, load your animals and return to the land of Canaan and bring your father and your families back to me. I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you can enjoy the fat of the land. You are also directed to tell them, do this, take some carts from Egypt for your children and your wives and get your father and come. Never mind about your belongings because the best of all Egypt will be yours. So the sons of Israel did this. Joseph gave them carts as Pharaoh had commanded, and he also gave them provisions for their journey. To each of them he gave new clothing, but to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five sets of clothes. And this is what he sent to his father, ten donkeys loaded with the best things of Egypt and ten female donkeys loaded with grain and bread and other provisions for his journey. Then he sent his brothers away, and as they were leaving, he said to them, Don't quarrel on the way. So they went up out of Egypt and came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan. They told him, Joseph is still alive. In fact, he is ruler of all Egypt. Jacob was stunned. He did not believe them. But when they told him everything Joseph had said to them, and when he saw the carts Joseph had sent to carry him back, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, I'm convinced my son Joseph is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. So Israel set out with all that was his. And when he reached Beersheba, he offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in a vision at night and said, Jacob, Jacob, here I am, he replied. I am God, the God of your father, he said. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will surely bring you back again. And Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. 
Then Jacob left Beersheba, and Israel's sons took their father Joseph and their children and their wives in the carts that Pharaoh had sent to transport them. So Jacob and all his offspring went to Egypt, taking with them their livestock and the possessions they had acquired in Canaan. Jacob brought with him to Egypt his sons and grandsons and his daughters and granddaughter, all of his offspring. Lord, we know you're with us. We just pray again for your help and your clarity uh, for our hearts and minds. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, are there people in your life on whom you would like to exact a little revenge? Come on. You know, someone who deserves some kind of consequence. I mean, this is, this is fodder for movie makers and songwriters, isn't it? They know that we, we think this way. So many movies have that kind of revenge idea or getting back at someone as a, as a big theme, putting right the wrongs. And of course, life is full of hurt, isn't it? I was chatting with one of the other fathers at my kid's school this week about how well our kids are being included in the school. He's of another nationality, and I got the impression while I was talking to him that when he grew up going to school in rural South Australia, things weren't actually that easy. Bullying hasn't gone away, of course. There are bullies at every stage of life, maybe the workplace. The big one these days that we're hearing all about is uh, social media and online chat rooms and particularly, you know, vulnerable younger people. Big corporations can bully the little guy and make you mad and furious. Even government departments can bully. And, you know, believe it or not, there can even be bullying in our churches and bullying in our houses, in our homes. Of course, bullying, bullying isn't the only thing that stirs a desire for vengeance, is it? What about betrayal? What about abuse? What about persistent disrespect? What about that road accident caused by another person's carelessness? Maybe you don't personally seek revenge, uh, but, but is there a bitterness that you kind of hold on to somewhere inside? Or perhaps it's just a sense of resignation, you know, you realise that revenge won't achieve anything, or maybe you're too frightened to go ahead with it because, you know, it can put you out there. Whatever the case, when you see the person or you hear their name, your, your jaw just tightens a little. Well, this is a sensitive area, and I don't want to press your buttons, but as we saw last week, sometimes God exerts pressure on us to urge us to lay bare before him our hearts and the purity, the impurities within. Even those impurities that sometimes we, we may justify, he wants to bring them out. He wants to purify us. You know, he wants to take sin away from us. And he wants to prepare us for a sin-free future in his eternal presence. Sin and God's people, we, you know, we've got to be separated. Last Sunday, we looked at the searching topic of repentance. 
God used Joseph to press hard on the consciences of Joseph's brothers. And today we look at the other side of the reconciliation equation. For true reconciliation in a relationship, not only is repentance by the guilty party necessary, so too is forgiveness by the offended party. And that is what Joseph has done. His brothers had sold him into slavery, but he has forgiven them. We saw that in the passage. And, and you know, it's not because things actually turned out really well for him and so, you know, he doesn't need to feel bitter anymore. I mean, you and I know that, you know, things working out for us in life actually does nothing to heal the resentments that we carry for people who've hurt us. If we've been hurt, you know, we can dig a hole for our pain, you know, chuck it in, fill it in, cover it over, but it doesn't make the pain go away. Forgiveness is not easy, especially if the other party won't repent or won't ask for forgiveness or if they won't even acknowledge the pain that they've caused you. But, you know, even if they do ask you for forgiveness, it's still almost beyond us, truly, to let it go. I really only have one main point today, and it flows out of this passage about Joseph's forgiveness, and it's this. Forgiveness is a fruit of faith. Forgiveness is a fruit of faith, a fundamental fruit of faith. Forgiveness springs out of our faith. And forgiveness proves the reality of our faith. In fact, I believe that faith in God is so fundamental to forgiveness that I think it's actually hard to achieve true forgiveness any other way. I know that's a big call. Some of you may think that's crazy to say that. This is the only real way, I think. Without faith in God, the best we can do, I think there are, there are options. You may have thought of others or two that sprang to my mind. The best we can do without faith is somehow to just let it go. You know, somehow release ourselves from it and stop it affecting us. And maybe, maybe it's mindfulness. Maybe you write the, the name of the person or the sin that they've done against you on a piece of paper and throw it in a fire or something. I don't know how you somehow separate yourself and let, you, let that go. It, it is hard. Or maybe the other thing we try to do is, you know, to look on the bright side, you know, try and see the positives. But I believe Jesus offers us a better way, a type of forgiveness that is deep and transformative. True healing of your spirit. And it's, it's not about practicing certain mental techniques or mindfulness, although those, those may be helpful. It's about seeing and believing that God is at work. That is, it's about faith. I want to show you that Joseph's forgiveness of his brothers is driven by his faith in God. Now you may have noticed as we heard the reading, there's, there's no point where Joseph actually says, I forgive you. And yet the forgiveness that Joseph seems to offer is absolute and complete. He no longer holds anything against them. Perhaps forgiveness is a description of something that's happened internally for him in his heart or in his prayers before this day. And you know, in fact, in a few chapters' time, we may not look at it in detail, but in a few chapters' time later in Genesis, when their father Jacob ultimately dies... The brothers are sheepishly going to come back to Joseph and they're half expecting that he's going to actually take revenge after all as if he, you know, he's just been trying to keep dad happy 
by reconciling with his brothers. But no, when that happens, uh, Joseph basically repeats pretty much exactly what he says in this chapter. He knows they're guilty, but at no point does he hold it against them. How? And why? What's the secret of his forgiveness? And where do we get this? Well, last week we looked at that crucial moment of Joseph's second test of his brothers. Benjamin had been found with Joseph's silver cup in his bag, in his sack. And it looks like theft. But Judah, the brother who came up with the idea in the first place of selling Joseph into slavery, Judah then offered himself as Benjamin's stand-in for his father's sake. And so there have been a bunch of tests designed to give these brothers the opportunity to demonstrate a change of heart. And these tests have been gruelling for the brothers. But they've also been gruelling for Joseph, as we've seen along the way, with him needing to take solace and go and weep in private. We get to the beginning of chapter 45, and he seems to have you know, hit his limit. And it says that Joseph can control himself no longer, and he yells... Everyone get out, except for you 10 Hebrew men. Oop. <laughs> Can you imagine, you know, the fear among the brothers? We're done for. And then Joseph bursts into tears. What? Loud tears, deep sobs. This man is out of control in front of them. And the Egyptians outside apparently can hear, you know, but what's going on? I am Joseph. Is my father still living? Now, there's, there's too much in those first three words, isn't there, really, for them to even hear the question that came afterwards. Joseph, the one we sold and left for dead, they are speechless and they are terrified. You know, for these brothers, don't get it wrong, these, this is no happy family reunion. Oh, great, Joseph! <laughs> This is where they all get thrown into prison and enslaved for the rest of their lives. Surely it's payback time. Joseph says, come close to me. I don't know about that. I mean, you know, what's he holding behind his back? Who's going to get it first? But they move over to him and Joseph says, I am your brother, Joseph whom you sold into slavery, into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here. Don't you find those words extraordinary? Don't be distressed. Don't be angry with yourselves. It seems to me that the forgiveness is all well and truly done. He's already moving on to the implications of the forgiveness. Don't be distressed. Don't be angry with yourselves. He's not pretending as if nothing's happened. I mean, he mentions this uncomfortable truth. You did sell me here, but he has released them from the guilt of it. And he's liberating them from the distress and the self-loathing caused by their sin. Now, just for a moment, let's pause and step back and consider the forgiveness that we have received from God. When we come before him, we've already been liberated from our guilt 
by his actions. It's already happened. Our sin is already paid for by Jesus on the cross. Now, by all means, beg like crazy for forgiveness when you realize your sin and, and, it, and it cuts you to the heart. But it ain't the begging that's going to make for the forgiven. Forgiveness is, is not our idea any more than it was the brother's idea. What is a fact is that the Son of God was found one day naked and nailed to a cross. And there is simply no reasonable explanation for this other than whatever he was doing up there, it must have been the only possible way he could have done it. What is the maker of the universe doing on a cross? But the Bible tells us that the reason he was there was to wipe clean our slate of sin. To cleanse us, to take it all away, to count us innocent and to be punished in our place. So that after they're all been said and done, that there would be no one left to punish because the punishment was, was done. And it all happened before we were even born. It's there sitting in, in history but we find out about it and, and then we realise what it was for and we find ourselves already forgiven, even for sins we haven't, for, haven't committed yet. And of course, we have to receive forgiveness in the spirit of repentance. Can you imagine that the brothers had received these words of assurance from Joseph and then they went back to their old ways? A little bit later, you know, a bit more backstabbing. This is the hard truth, but God's wrath remains on those who hear the message of forgiveness and then go back to their old ways. Or, or just tell God, look, thanks for the cross, I'm not interested. Doesn't really, doesn't really make a big difference to my life. Back to Joseph. Surely, if it were me standing in his shoes, you know, I would want at least half an hour or so of letting them stew, you know, letting them squirm a bit. Wouldn't you want just, just half an hour? That's all I ask for. Just let them to realise, let them realise just how big this has been for me. You know, it wasn't very nice in the system. Those Ishmaelites, they were rude and they, they whipped me and, they, you know, it was just hard and I went from slavery to prison. It's been years and years, guys. And do you have any idea what an enormous task it is for me to utter those words, I forgive you? Aren't you lucky you've got me for your brother and not some other scoundrel? No, sometime before this day, we don't know how long before, but Joseph has released them from their guilt. And now he's just telling them about it. What a joy. How does he do this? What is the secret of his forgiveness? Look at his very next words. This is the end of verse 5 and following. Joseph says, Because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now there's been famine in the land, and for the next five there'll be no ploughing or reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth, a remnant of Jacob's offspring, and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. 
Joseph has clearly spent a long time thinking over what has happened to him, and he sees the hand of God in it all. And that, of course, is what faith is. Some people think of faith as simply just this uh, disposition to accept things that you can't see. That's not dissimilar in some ways from how Hebrews 11 verse 1 talks about it, that its faith is seeing, is believing in what cannot be seen. But I think faith is also in some ways about seeing in a different kind of way. And one chapter on in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2, tells us to fix our eyes on Jesus. Your eyes. Now obviously not these eyes, but some, some sort of eyes in here in a way. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. And so we see Jesus with the eyes of faith. What? We see the truth. We see the saviour. We see the work of God. And I think Joseph has become so aware of how God has been at work through his trials that he has come to love the work of God and rejoice in the work of God even through the bumps. You can see the scale of it. He has come to see that the work of God is the wonderful, liberating work of salvation and that he personally has the honour of being a central part of the unfolding of that salvation. And what an amazing salvation it's been. And for Joseph, that privilege far outstrips the question of his own suffering and his own burden of feelings against his brothers. You see, he sees God is saving a bunch of people, lots of them, from starvation, and he's using him to make it all happen, and that puts everything in a different light. There's the flip side of, as well, of course. For Joseph to contemplate the alternative path, you know, holding on to bitterness as if it were more important than feeding the hundreds of thousands of people during this famine, it would simply be not right. And of course, in this story, we know that there's actually more at stake than just the people of his day in Egypt and Canaan and other surrounding countries, God's blessing of the whole world would, that would ultimately come through Jesus Christ was going to come through this family. This is the thread leading back to Abraham. And Joseph obviously couldn't see all the details. It's still, you know, 1,500 years or more before Christ. But he knew of God's intended blessing. He knew that his family was at the very center of that blessing because of what God had promised to his great-grandfather Abraham sometime earlier. And it's against, it's that extraordinary context against which he evaluates his own personal circumstances. What God is doing through my struggles is so much bigger than my struggles. It's even, it's, it's even so much better than my struggles. And it is ultimately the healing of my struggles. I can't just go into my shell and tell God, you know, do your mission some other way, please. Why would we want to do that when we see the joy of what God is doing amongst us and through us? So then, how exactly is faith supposed to help us 
to deal with our bitterness and hurt. You may think, yeah, well, I'm not Joseph. You haven't made me Prime Minister of Egypt recently. And yet all the way through these, um, this, this story of Joseph, we have been seeing this, that God brings good out of evil. Do you believe that? Do you believe God brings good out of evil? Because if you do, then you have the power to forgive that unbelievers don't have. God brings good out of evil. You know that it is God who does this and only God who can really do this. I heard it said recently that it's in the nature of the devil to bring evil out of good. It's in the nature of a human being to bring good out of good or evil out of evil. But it's in the nature of God to bring good out of evil. Is it possible, you've got to ask yourself, that God can bring or even is bringing good out of the evil that has happened to you? That would be faith, wouldn't it? Tough faith, but, but that's faith. Faith that there is a bigger purpose to your suffering and that as believers, we're all part of it. This wonderful sovereign God is bringing salvation to lost souls and he's using Christian mercy and Christian forgiveness as part of the picture alongside his own mercy and his own forgiveness. Because in our character and the way we act, we point to him and his far superior character. When you or I return not evil for evil, but good for evil, we shine a light on God, don't we? Because that's who he is. Remember those words in Romans, while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. And we would dare hold on to our grudges. Even if it meant that someone lost the chance to hear about that salvation because of our right to hold on to our grudges, we would dare. Is it possible that by being unforgiving, we find ourselves actually working against God? Jesus told some pretty confronting parables. I think one of the most confronting is the parable in Matthew 18, of the unmerciful servant. Do you remember that parable? A man is brought before a king, and he has a debt of 10,000 talents. That might not mean much to us, but you convert it into today's dollar equivalent. It's about $10 billion. It's a large amount. Jesus is actually saying that's the kind of debt we have before God. Don't know about you, but... There is no lifetime I could consider in which I could repay that sort of money. It's completely and utterly unpayable. This man begs for mercy. Uh, instead of you know, reducing it, the king cancels the debt. That's what God does. But as soon as the man leaves the king's presence, he bumps into a guy who owes him the equivalent of $25,000. And he grabs him and he begins to choke him has him thrown in prison. 
What is the reaction of the king when he finds out? Well, he reinstates the first man's debt and imprisons him until he can pay it off. Perhaps this aspect of our faith is a little more alarming. Is Jesus saying that failure to forgive others might actually lead to a reinstatement of our own debt? For some people, praying the Lord's Prayer is very difficult. Particularly that line where Jesus taught us to say, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. But those who are forgiven must forgive. How can, how can we not forgive? We must not hold on to our grudges and grievances, but I know this is hard. Well, one or two quick extra things before, uh, before we wrap up. Back to the story. Joseph embraces his brothers and he weeps with them and kisses them. I think they've finally realised it is actually him. <laughs> and then they talk together. Obviously, there's a lot to catch up on. You know. And so it really is a family reunion. And the news of this reaches Pharaoh. And he's delighted that Joseph's brothers have turned up. Oh, isn't that great? Wonderful. And he offers the family the best of the land of Egypt. Come and move in. It's wonderful to have you here with us in Egypt. Come and, come and live with us. It's an amazing act of hospitality and a sign of this ongoing honour that Pharaoh has for Joseph. And it's also, I think, convincing proof, to me at least, that Pharaoh knows absolutely nothing about what these brothers have done to Joseph. This is an honour-shame culture. And they have shamed Joseph in the worst possible way. And Joseph is now honoured. You know, the, in, in Pharaoh's eyes, these, these men don't deserve mercy. And I can't imagine that he would have been anywhere near as ready to forgive as Joseph was. He certainly wouldn't have been offering them the best of his land. So what am I saying? I'm saying that there's, I reckon there's actually another way that all of this blessing of God through Jacob's family could have collapsed right here. And I guess the question is, if Joseph had been sharing his grievances along the way with everyone he'd met, you know, if word had got back to Pharaoh and, and the rest of the Egyptians, did, your brothers did that to you. Well, if I ever see them, you know what I'm going to do to them. Joseph may well have had the whole of Egypt up in arms against these brothers as they sheepishly turn up looking for grain. It, it is so easy for us to defame others rather than to pray for them to repent. Now, there are some sins that need to be made public because they're public sins. In our context, for example, if someone has broken the law, it's appropriate to report them to the police. If someone sins against the whole congregation, it's important to say it in front of the congregation. If someone has dishonoured you in a public forum, it may be appropriate in a, in a godly way to try to bring light to the truth, bring to light the truth. But it's another thing to gossip or to use social media or other means of commu communication to muddy the person's name. You know, that's just a different kind of revenge. 
And by doing this again, you know, we might be preventing God from, not that we can in any ways stop his sovereign plans, but in some ways standing in the way of his doing the good work of reconciliation and restoration through us. Our faith in God gives us the big picture. Salvation and blessing might not only come from our forgiveness, but also from our discretion and self-control and our prayers for repentance for others. I think that's a good thing to pray for, actually, if someone really has hurt you. A second quick thing, we mustn't, pass, mustn't miss the impact of this whole episode on Jacob, the father. I mentioned last week, in some ways the whole Joseph episode is about Jacob. His sons return and tell him, Joseph is alive. In fact, he's the ruler of all Egypt. Yeah, right. <laughs> Joseph uh, is stunned but doesn't believe them. But then they tell him the whole story and he sees the carts and the 20 donkeys and the provisions from Joseph and we're told, verse 27, that the spirit of their father, Jacob, revived. What a wonderful story of restoration. Do you remember last week, if you were here, that Jacob uttered the words, everything is against me. He'd virtually given up on God's blessing. But here is the new Jacob. He's overjoyed and now determined to see Joseph again before he dies. And so they head off with all their possessions to Egypt. And on the way, there's yet another dream. This really is the story of dreams. But this time, God speaks directly to the patriarch, to Jacob. And he says in the dream, don't be afraid to go to Egypt. After all, Jacob knows that walking in the direction of Egypt is walking in the precise opposite direction of Canaan, which is the promised land. That's kind of where it's all supposed to happen. Don't be afraid to go to Egypt. God says, it's there that I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to go down to Egypt with you and surely I'm going to bring you back again. And you wait till you see it. This whole tumultuous, intriguing story closes with God's clear word to the patriarch. This is all my doing. And it's through all of this that my blessing is going to come. Well, let's draw the threads together. Forgiveness is hard. It can take a while. In my former church, we used to hold an annual vigil for the families of homicide victims. It's an incredible service. It wasn't, strictly the, it wasn't strictly a service. They kind of ran it, but we were able to be part of it. And, you know, I'd had many conversations with people, and they told me, you, you don't move on. Don't use that language when you're talking with someone whose relative has been murdered. They don't move on. They move forward, they say. It's your only choice because the sadness is so profound. One bereaved father said to me that one night, about five years after his daughter had been murdered, he was watching some comedy on TV and suddenly he heard laughter there in the room and he turned around to see if there was, if there was someone behind him, but there was no one there. And then he realised it was him who'd laughed for the first time in five years and he'd nearly shocked himself out of his own skin. Is forgiveness possible in this context? Well, it's a very mixed group of people. 
Uh, but amongst that, those hundreds of people in our community who deal with the murder of their loved ones in all manner of different ways, there are the Christians who have something different. It's not easy for them either. They still feel the pain every day. But forgiveness happens because they know that God works good through evil. So I want to ask you to finish with, who are the Christians in Victor and in the South Coast? Who are the Christians? Are we the ones who put on the nice slacks and the collared shirts on Sunday mornings? Are we the ones who don't stay at the pub after 9pm, gets a bit rowdy? Are we the ones with the, you know, the, the sort of old-fashioned social views, don't seem to be able to move along with the rest of the community? Who, who are the Christians in Victor and the South Coast? We are the ones who forgive. Even at great cost to ourselves because we have been forgiven at great cost to our God. These are the things that we should be known for. Let's pray. Merciful, forgiving God, we thank you that before we were even born, our sin was dealt with at the cross. We thank you that we come into your presence knowing that you are no longer angry, that our judgment no longer hangs over our head, and that our sin is forgiven. Give us the, the, the pure repentance, not just the saying sorry, but the turning and the changing by your Holy Spirit. Transform us so that we may live according to this forgiveness. And we pray that in our own lives, as we deal with those who've caused us hurt, you would give us your heart of forgiveness and mercy, that we may not throttle those that we see who owe us, but forgive them, offer a release for what they've done. And Father, we ask that through these difficult acts of forgiveness, whether it's just in our hearts or whether it's in a face-to-face -face conversation, we pray that you would use them to bring your grace and mercy into people's lives. Father, may we be known in Victor, not only the Christians in this church, but Christians right across this part of the world. May we be known as those who forgive. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.